This episode is brought to you by That Ain't Rose's Potpourri. Well, it's that time of year again. You've got guests coming and your bathroom is going to be kept busy. Family, grandma, lactose intolerant nephews and nieces, Uncle Garth or Uncle Garlic, as you call him behind his back. Are you going to put your trust in some patchouli candle from Whole Foods? Because a scented candle designed for someone who eats a little too much broccoli is probably not up to the task. The founders of That Ain't Roses realize that some odor problems can't be solved by just covering them up. No, in that case, you need to distract as well with a scent that is at least as equally vile. So they comb the globe for smells that succumb, the whiff that wilts, the silences that are most deadly. Corpse flower? Got it. Oil refinery? Done. Skunk roadkill? Of course. Post-battlefield bonfire? Would we leave that out? The That Ain't Roses products give you the confidence to leave the bathroom saying, well, it wasn't me. And when you order a starter pack at their website, be sure to use the promotion code REREAD, one word. And thank you, That Ain't Roses Potpourri, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. Warning, the following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this nearly 40-year-old book, Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story. You can only reread a Gene Wolfe story. Welcome to Rereading Wolf. We'll abandon the literary artifice that this is the first time you and we have read these books. We're going to try to understand, and that means considering the books as a whole. Hi, I'm James Wynn. And I'm Craig Brewer. All right. So... Craig, we have some comments. Great. And yes, some errata. <laughs> That's good. That's good. We can't we can't let ourselves get too full of ourselves with our absolute accuracy. It's a heavy cross to bear. <laughs> Bernard Stockerman's has some multi-chapter corrections going back all the way to the beginning. For chapter seven, Bernard corrects me in my designation of Tertullian, Bishop of Carthage, as Saint Tertullian. I seem to have confused him with the fifth century Bishop of Bologna, Saint Tertullian. Tertullian, the unsainted, although an esteemed authority on second century Christianity and the heresies of that time, he was never made a saint because, ironically, he became enamored at the end of his life with Montanism, which would eventually be determined a heresy. <laughs> As for our last episode in chapters 8, 9, and beginning of 10, Bernard says, Regarding the passage where Severian tells Thecla, we have a celestial patroness, James says that this implies that the guild's patrons are not patrons in the Catholic sense. They are celestial 
And this means people don't expect Holy Catherine to intercede for them. But I would argue that patron saints intercede for people because they are celestial. For Catholics, saints are people who now reside in heaven and behold God's face to face. They are therefore capable of interceding before God for us, for terrestrial residents below. I don't think, based on this passage, there's any reason to think wolf means patroness in a very different sense to the Catholic. Well, okay, uh, I may have stated that too strongly. I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't. I don't find any evidence that the torturers would have prayed to Saint Catherine or expected an intercession. Yeah. And on chapter one, Bernard writes. Regarding Severian's confession, I am a Vodalarius. James says that he becomes a follower of Vodalus in much the same way that one becomes a Christian, simply by saying so. And he says it as though it's always been true, even though it hasn't been true until recently. I think I know what James intends here, but I don't think his words reflect that accurately, since one becomes a Christian not by simply saying so, but through baptism through making a visible sign. Of course, there are Christians today who argue that baptism isn't necessary. That is, I interject, simply a symbol of what has happened invisibly on the inside. But Wolf, Bernard says, was a Catholic. I think it's unlikely he held that belief, especially considering the context of receiving the coin from Vodalus and the description of the autarch's soldier's initiation. Incidentally, the same Tertullian was the first to render the Greek word mysterion, a secret ritual of initiation, as sacramentum in Latin, which word originally referred to a soldier's oath to the Roman emperor. The, quote, we believe that we invent symbols, and the, quote, thus I knew nothing, paragraphs, I think make it clear that what is going on here is a sacrament in both the religious and military sense. Severian makes his profession of faith, his symbolon, or creed, to Vodalus and receives from him the visible sign of his initiation, thereby immediately taking upon himself, as we are told, the dogmas of Vodalus. Oh yeah, that is really, really good. Mm -hmm. Good points, Bernard. He's right that Severian does do more than affirm himself as a follower of Vodalus. It is his confession as Bernard seems to agree. And I didn't mean to make more of it than that. So he makes a good point that in receiving a coin, Severian receives an analogy to baptism as well. I wasn't aware of the connection between a sacrament and a soldier's oath. That's pretty cool, actually. So Craig, Sean Robinson thought your analysis of Severian's memory was <laughs> a little off the mark and misremembering some of the textual references. So Yeah, I think he was right on the way I, I mentioned one particular detail. Yeah. Yeah, he says you you focused on the idea of attention, that Severian needs mm -hmm. to have been paying attention to something to remember it. And actually on the Gene Wolf Appreciation Society Facebook page a couple months ago, Jordan Flato also addressed this very issue of attention. Uh, and I'll link to that post in the show notes. Sean says although Severian says he doesn't remember 
everything, such as the name of every single book in Alton Stacks, where it was, after all, dark, but remembers more than most would credit, including the position of every object on a table he passed by. Don't want to be a pendant. <laughs> Sean, you have come to the wrong podcast then. Just wanted to note this. Since Craig's examples of what he recalls, Severian giving us the limitations of his memory was actually what Severian claims within his power. Sean offers a relevant passage. The truth is that I am one of those who are cursed with what is called perfect recollection. We cannot, as I have sometimes heard foolishly alleged, remember everything. I cannot recall the ordering of the books on the shelves of the library of Master Alton, for example but I can remember more than many would credit the position of each object on a table I walked past when I was a child, and even that I have recalled some scene to my mind previously and how that remembered incident differed from the memory of it I have now. Uh, so it is true, as Son says, on the other hand, there are strange gaps in his memory, such as you know, being unsure how old he was when Maurubius died, even to within a couple mm -hmm. of years. Although it doesn't seem that he was especially young at the time. This whole issue is still debatable in the extreme, but I think your point, Craig, that Severian needs to have paid attention to remember is still, you know, arguable. And just because Severian remembers all the items on Palamon's desk doesn't mean that memory is trustworthy. And finally, to remember that you once remembered things differently than you do currently upsets the entire concept of incorruptible memory. I was going to, yeah, right. And that's the one, that's the part of it that I, after rereading it again this time, after he pointed it out, that was the section that grabbed me where I'm like, okay, is this wolf having fun with us now? <laughs> where he set up something here, which yeah, exactly does undercut exactly what he's just been saying yeah. that like, I have, I can remember these things perfectly. I can also remember when I remember them all <laughs> and you're like, wait a minute, <laughs> just uh, it, you, you've now sort of put an assumption in that contradicts something. Yeah. So yeah, that's a bizarre stipulation. It's just right. insane. Really? Yeah. <laughs> you could try to to go with Wolf there and say that maybe what he's talking about is how he had gotten something wrong when he wasn't paying attention very well in one memory and then had a better memory that fixed it later on. You could grant that, I suppose, but I don't think that's really the way he says it. When he's putting it like that, it definitely seems to me more like he's kind of very intentionally calling into question sort of how good and how detailed those things were. Yeah, and what memory means. Yeah. And plus, it's sort of odd when he mentions, like, I can remember the, the things on the table I passed. And just that sense of movement is interesting to me because the one thing that Severian is constantly doing is getting lost. And it's when he's in movement <laughs> yeah. that, you know, and he makes the most mistakes. So for that good example there to be when he was in movement, that's that's weird, too. Right. It's, yeah. It, it seems like an odd thing to, to pick up. So I completely agree. Yeah, I absolutely said that wrong because I think I said that he couldn't remember the things on the table. Um, and that's right. But then that that next part is what gets me this time. He takes back with one hand what he offers us with the other. It's strange. If that's true, if, unless we're being very cynical, or not cynical, but unless we're looking for a joke instead of seeing that to, to be something. No, I, I don't think it's a joke. I think it's, I, I think it means something. I, I think we're being offered something, but yeah. what it is is still, <laughs> it's still out there.
Sean also thinks our discussion is still too limited so far. He says, in my estimation, most of your discussion of the memory issue is on mark, but you've yet to take up what seems more significant and purposeful about the memory question, the plot points and indeed outcome of the world that seems to be solely dependent on this special characteristic of his. But of course, mm -hmm. we're not there yet, hoping for more fulsome discussion of this in the feast episode. Yep. Once you get to that part, then the point about Severian's memory really being able to recreate Thecla in his mind, you know, that's the real certain plot point. And then what I think gets interesting is the larger question then of, okay, well, once he starts to remember the different autarchs and possibly even if he's supposed to be standing in as having, you know, all kinds of racial memory or, or human memory in general, then it becomes a much more important yeah. plot point. Whereas so far, what we're doing is more arguing the comic book hero's superpowers right, and yeah. their exact limits and things like that. Yeah. So, but I definitely do think that the main point of his memory does have bigger, mm -hmm. uh, a bigger role to play with this other I think it means something. I think yeah. this, all of this convoluted memory discussion has to do with something important about the plot, about Severian, about who he is and, and what he means. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't claim to know what that is yet. Well, Sean also corrects or expands on our discussion of the House Azure, Blue, and the Green Room in House Absolute, Green. He notes that the Green Room is kind of a pun. Sean says, quote, in our time, a green room is a theatrical term for a place where performers rest and gather themselves for their performance. Severian mistakes this location for a proper name, that is, the green room. The additional joke is, of course, being located in a garden. It is also literally green. I think this is true. Maybe I don't agree with Sean's implication that that's all or mostly about the green room pun. But I think he is right as far as it goes. I didn't bring it up in chapter nine discussion because I thought it would be more demonstrable when we were talking about the play at House Absolute. What we talked about ref reflects my personal interest, which you've kind of caught, Craig, regarding Wolf's persistent, complementary, and oppositional pairing of the colors green and blue. In chapter two, you noted Severian drowning in the guile and seeing below him the face of the woman as big as the green face of the moon. But there is also a conversation that I don't think we recorded about the procession of the curators on their feast day, where Kaibi goes on and on about the green plants that line the street on the day, and then mentions the blue candles that they carry to symbolize the cloth. In the comments, Stephen Frug pushes back on my reading of Thecla's attitude towards Severian in our Chapter 7 discussion. It provoked from him such a long and thoughtful piece. Well, I mean, I get the reaction. Stephen said, quote, friendliness towards someone who might someday give her some advantage and whose power relation to her is not at all straightforward, but not really playing him as such. Well, okay, yeah, I, maybe I went a little too far. Craig, I detected even at the time you thought my reading of her voice was a, taking it a little too far, at least. As I told Stephen, my reading was tendentious. I'm aware that my reading might cause a backlash, causing them to affirm less strategic motivation 
to Thecla than they otherwise would. And yet I regret nothing in my portrayal, <laughs> which I do consider on point regarding Wolf's intent. And I think has been underappreciated. Yeah, and plus, like we said, especially if you're in the context of all the discussions about Wolf and female characters mm -hmm. and, you know, gender issues, to look at her in that super stronger, manipulative mm -hmm. way, especially given her circumstances, um, I think is really interesting. Yeah, of all the characters in the Book of the New Sun, even more than Asia, Thecla is the one who exudes competence for me. She's not intended to be betrayed as a helpless victim of circumstance or an icon of love in Severian's mind, you know, just a, a flat painting of a saint. She's scared, terrified. Severian conveys that. When you said that her hands were icy because she was frightened, that's actually what I do believe. But she's the total master of her presentation in the midst of that. Severian knows she's trying to manipulate him. She's not the first to try to do that at the Madison. Severian knows what she's doing, and still, time after time, he cannot extract himself from her conversation. He ends up in her cell. Her consistent use of Severian's name strikes me as almost too obvious. A device that works, you know, doesn't need much surreptitiousness. Despite Severian's drop-the-mic moment at the end, she gets everything she tries for in her encounter with him. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, maybe I pushed the pendulum too hard in the other direction as a corrective measure, as I saw it. But I'm not sure I've corrected it enough for my satisfaction. I think this is the last chapter, this one that you're about to listen to, where you're going to have to endure my characterization of the manipulative <laughs> Thecla. Unless we find ways that she's much more manipulating him from the inside. As things go on. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Gosh, I'd love that. But... Although given their situation, her feelings for Severian are ambiguous. She is, I think, to him like the journeyman of the Red Tower toward their animals, like a commander to his men on the even assault where he knows half of them aren't coming back. She is Severian's torturer in that sense. She cares mm -hmm. for him, but you know, ultimately he is her best tool to survive until someone finally sends orders for her release. She loves him, but as he writes, with Thecla's memory of him in his mind, she was a great Chatelaine, and he was less than a slave. She hoped to go back to House Absolute or Lake Diaturna, and there would be no place for Severian there. There just wouldn't. Severian later says that he could have saved her from the tower if his love had been purer, or he had loved her enough. And, you know, okay, he might have got her out of the tower. After that, it gets trickier. But he criticizes himself for not doing it, for not putting the love he felt for her above all, regardless of how she felt for him. But I'm not convinced that Thecla's love for him was so great that she could have expected Severian to save her even though as she suffered from the revolutionary, she'd have offered him anything to have saved her from it. She certainly would not have made an equivalent sacrifice for him. And that knowledge is a factor in his decision not to save her, even though he condemns himself for it and both shadow the torturer and sort of licked her. And that's my take on Thecla. I, I love her because she is such a complex, deep, 
really competent character. You could have written a novel about her. Um, Stephen Frug notes that the false Thecla of the House Azure talks to Severian of, quote, the Chatelaine Thecla of your mind, which is the only Chatelaine Thecla you care about. And he notes that Severian literally has Chatelaine Thecla of his mind, living inside his mind. Nice catch at foreshadowing, Stephen. The commenter gallery agrees with you, Craig, that the autarch's veinless eyes like glass is a kind of metaphor. Sean Robinson saw it as Severian's reaction to the man's otherness due to the legion of personalities that he represents. And, and Stephen Frug saw it as, quote, an exaggeration for the purposes of narrative. Well, you know, honestly, I'm adverse to this kind of explanation, I admit, even though I know how often it is legitimate. Severian says these eyes are veinless and like glass, and I want them to be just that. When the apprentices repeat rumors that the autark is a woman disguised as a man, I want it to be as true in the way that the rumors are true about him being tall when standing and shorter when seated. Craig, I mentioned to you and I mentioned to Nigel once that I feel like I go into the woods and I show you bear scat, bear prints and bear scratches <laughs> high up on the trees. And I say, look, there are bears here. And then everyone says, no, it means someone around here likes bears. <laughs> However, in this case, at this time, I can't explain those weird eyes without inventing a narrative out of whole cloth where the autark loses his eyes and they're replaced with artificial ones. So, you know, metaphor, right? However, symbolically, blinding and castration are linked. So, but I can't fight with something with nothing. And right now, I've got nothing. Metaphor claims the field. <laughs> Now, in our discussion of the House Azure, we both assumed that the stained glass temptation scene was of a conciliator version of the last temptation of Christ. Nigel had a different take. Quote, given that the House Azure is a brothel, can I suggest that the more obvious subject for the picture would have been the temptation of Eve or possibly both Adam and Eve? A naked woman, possibly a naked man, and almost certainly a suggestively phallic snake. The subject has plenty of erotic potential and would fit in perfectly well with its location, as well as carrying the thematic significance, given that in this episode, Severian is going to be subject to sexual temptation. We know from Dr. Talos's play, Eschatology in Genesis, that some version of the biblical story of Adam and Eve is known in the Commonwealth, however distorted it might be, so it is just as available for pictorial representation as it is for dramatic. Michael Andre Dreesi, reaching out to us over email, agreed with Nigel's take on the temptation. He says, guys, this is the Playboy Mansion. Temptation <laughs> of Eve seems more likely to me. <laughs> <laughs> Nigel assumes the House Azure's Garden of Eden stained glass scene is more um, on the nose than you find in churches today. At first, mm -hmm. I was going to push back that, you know, wouldn't the house Azure clients prefer to think of themselves as Christ being tempted than Eve being tempted? But then I realized that 
in the Garden of Eden scene, the clients would be imagining themselves as the snake. So, <laughs> yeah, you know, it works. Sean Robinson, reflecting on Nigel's plumbing of Great Expectation references and earlier Nicholas Nickleby, speculated on parallels to David Copperfield as well. After some thoughtful speculation, he asked, did Wolf have a long-term affiliation with or affinity for Dickens? Prompted by this, Nigel posted some personal correspondence with Gene Wolfe that included discussion of Charles Dickens. I loved this. Even aside the Dickens connection, you can find a link to this post and the associated comments in the show notes. Nigel had a really interesting take on the Autark's shoes in the house azure, those thick soled shoes that make him tall when standing and normal when seated. Mm -hmm. Nigel proposes that they are brothel creepers, a kind of shoe with thick crepe soles that World War II servicemen wore when they were out on the town that became popular among 50s hipsters and rockers and later during the new wave and rockabilly gear of the 70s and 80s. This was illuminating to me, and I'll include a link to the Wikipedia page on brothel creepers. Via email, Shane Cosgrove reached out to us from Ireland, having just binged all the episodes over a two-week period. He wanted to talk about the Bear Tower ritual. He quotes from Chapter 4, saying, In the elevation of their masters, the candidate stands under a metal grate trod by a bleeding bull. At some point in life, each brother takes a lioness or bear sow in marriage, after which he shuns human women. So Shane proposes that this characterization of them shunning human women reflects Severian's misapprehension of the term animal husbandry. I think he's right about the animal husbandry connection as far as that goes. Big miss for us there, Craig. <laughs> we ought to have mentioned that. It was frequently mentioned on the Earth list as well. Honestly, it could be read as a mistake and elaboration on Severian's part. Personally, I think it's Wolf's mm -hmm adaptation of the term animal husbandry going the other way and making it some way real. But, you know, either way, it's textually valid. We also have that scene where all of the apprentices sit around and exchange rumors about the autark, which right. have some, you know, kernel of truth in them, but are never, but, but kind of go extreme. That sounds like it could fit that way too, whereas someone heard the term animal right. husbandry and then, you know, took it in a different way. So, that, yeah, I don't know. I, I kind of like that possibility of him reporting as true a rumor that he's heard before. He, he talks directly to apprentices it, at the Bear Tower, but, you know, that doesn't mean he didn't misunderstand what they were talking about. Yeah. 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 Either way, I think it's definitely right that it is. It's, it's a play on that term in one way or another. Yeah, definitely. Right. On the Bleeding Bull reference... Shane notes that this is possibly a reference to the Mithraic mysteries. Actually, I'm surprised I didn't go on a complete tangent myself at that point <laughs> on Mithraism and Wolf's love for incorporating pre-Christian religion that has similarities to Christianity or subsumed into Christianity. St. Catherine potentially is one of those. That is, after all, among my personal obsessions, as anyone who is a longtime Earthlister probably already knows. Mithras was a Persian solar deity whose rituals go back 4,000 years. His worship spread to first century Rome, especially among soldiers, and from there spread to Celtic Europe. 
The central icon of Mithra mystery cults is the hero Mithra cutting the throat of a bull. The iconography of Mithraism is highly cosmically oriented, the bull overtly associated with the constellation Taurus and Mithras using a curved blade. There are a lot of overlaps between the birth of Christ and the birth of Mithras, although despite Mithraism being much older than Christianity, Honestly, it isn't clear who influenced who. Whether that overlap was incorporated due to the overlap between the mystery religions, generally Gnosticism and Christian Gnosticism, you know, that's still open. Still, the Book of the New Sun is a Gnostic world, so it all fits. All right, so let's get on with the rest of chapter 10. Yep. Chapter 10, The Last year. Okay, so now it's spring. It's been roughly six months since Severian and Roche went to House Azure, mm-hmm. commonly called the Echopraxia. At this time, the necropolis blooms with naturally occurring lilies and purple stripes, white dots. I can't find a specific lily species that this describes. I can't come up with an illusion even that I'm able to offer to which, you know, these specific purple stripes and white dots might refer. It's just lilies. The, perhaps, perhaps the description of a flower in a wolf novel could be just a description of a flower. We'll see. The Severian brings her a bouquet of these flowers, though. When Thecla sees him, she, you know, she flatters him on his beard and says he'll soon be bluer of cheek than most men. I assume that means to have a darker five o'clock shadow. I, I was, again, unable to f- come up with any reference to this term outside of this book. If anyone knows of one, you know, let me know. The, the next day, she decides that that wasn't flattering enough. So she apologized for saying that he'll soon be bluer of cheek, that he's already that, uh, you know, her spirits are lifting though. She and Severian trace the insignia of old houses together. I, I now I've heard of tracing lineages, but I've never heard of uh, lineages, tracing lineages and the insignia being used synonymously. So, yeah, the only thing I was thinking of is about how, Families' crests get you know mixed up with other crests when families marry, and so like on the on the shield, you'll have the, like the four quarters, and you know how that is. Like if they were looking for connections between different ones, that could be. Oh, that could um, be, yeah. I was going to ask too. Do you think when she's worried about possibly insulting him with blue row cheek, is that supposed to signal that they are getting closer, and she's actually worried about his feelings, or is that? still a little manipulative what was your take on i thought it sounded manipulative i thought that you know she was just flattering him and she's the next day she's looking for another reason to flatter him even more but yeah it was hard to tell like i've i sort of wanted to fault that way at the same time it's and it's hard to remember too that thecla is sort of telling this too right mm-hmm. i mean she's sort of talking about this so it's not as if severian is just by himself recounting their relationship here that I would assume that her memories of how this relationship are supposed to be filtering in here too. That is of course, you know, assuming that Wolf did intentionally write this section, you know, of course he knew that Thecla was going to be there. 
Well, he said he wrote it backwards, right? He, that he, after he finished it, he went back through it and plotted it backwards as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I, I definitely think that's there. And plus, in the very beginning of the chapter that we talked about last time, you know, he did mention the Thecla who lives in me. So, you know, it's specifically right. there in this part. Um, but yeah, I always think you have to read it as not just Severian reporting what it was like, but really Severian and Thecla talking about it at the same time. When you read these parts, how much of, I guess one way to look at it is, is when Severian is retelling these stories with her, is it really just what Severian felt at the time? Or once we know that Thecla's inside of him right now, are we supposed to really understand that this is kind of how they both felt? And and it's a question because I'm honestly not sure. But I know that one thing you can sometimes do is read these sections as, oh, Severian was just still basically a little boy. And so his feelings are very naive in a lot of ways. And sometimes when he thinks that, you know, Thecla is returning his affection, she Mm -hmm. might not really be because she might just be using him. But when you remember that Severian is writing this as an older person looking back on it and that Thecla is in there with him, then maybe some of that's not supposed to be taken so naively that maybe it really was more of a, I don't know, a more sincere relationship that developed. But, you know, there's that scene where she says to a fellow prisoner, oh, you're going to like Severian. He's such a nice boy. And that just slays him. That just strikes yeah. him to right to the heart. Yeah. And I, it would have been interesting to know, you know, what she was thinking or felt mm-hmm. when she said those things. He's He is still very grateful for the times that he had with her, maybe more than as, a, as an older man than he was as a boy. Yeah. I was thinking, though, it seemed like if he wanted to say that Thecla was just manipulating him or really didn't have any mutual feelings for him, there's plenty of time in later in the novel when he could look back in his memories and record. And that was when I was really sad because I realized that Thecla, you know, hadn't loved me. He never says that, at least as far as I remember. That kind of makes me think that, okay, this really was more sincere and it wasn't just a crush that was all in Severian's head. Well, you know, I'm sure it's very ambiguous. She is a prisoner. Mm-hmm. He is the only person for her to talk to. Yeah. How could there not be emotions tied up into that mm-hmm. along with need and fear and well, you know, all those things are tied up with any uh, relationship that you have. Yeah. yeah. It's, just that the one thing that makes me kind of come back to it, it might be as sincere as he wants it to be is that he does talk about all kinds of other things that he learns about Thecla that are a little bit disillusioning. Like when he realizes, you know, that Thecla was in the group that came in and, and whipped the people in the antechamber. Right. You know, things like that. The, like he his view of her does get tarnished, but it's not it never comes right back to these points. That mm. seems like it's tarnished. Yeah, but I don't know. I mean, it's never something that I think is ever explicitly made clear. But yeah, it's just hard to know, you know, is she just manipulating him? Is he just naive and having a crush? Or was there something real? And plus, that's a that's a kind of hard question, I guess you'd ask about any relationship. <laughs> like, what's the actual essential thing there? But <laughs> yeah, this time, I feel like in the past, there have been times when I definitely feel like I was positive Thecla was manipulating him. This time, it seemed more more ambiguous. Uh, I think the outro music for this episode should be Bill Withers' Use Me. <laughs> so anyway, whatever they're doing, they, they gossip more about her exultant friends. 
she says that there must be a new autarky, perhaps an autarkia sometime, you know, Severian. Things can go on as they have for a long while, but not forever. Um, that seems like she's hoping for a replacement for the autark, maybe a revolution to free her. Yeah. You know, things can't go on like this forever. It's certainly common revolutionary talk. Yeah. Oh, just we do get the word autarkia there, which I think is yeah. <laughs> important because we've talked about how the coin was androgynous. Mm-hmm. And we know later on that part of the main reason for that is that there have been female autarchs and mm-hmm. they're just as Severian is often mistaken for a woman uh, by people who will sort of see him out of the corner of their eye that the autark will get a lot of those yeah. uh, female characteristics too. But it's not a big play here. It's certainly not. That's not the, the point where she brings it up. I think she's kind of bringing it up as if to say, you know, maybe a female autark would have more sympathy for me um, mm, and yeah. might get me out. But, yeah, it's also telling you, you know, not is it just a hypothesis, we also have a word for it. Yeah. Well, and we get uh, some details of the sort of thing that happens among high exultant families when a child is born. She says, when my mother was in labor, she had the servants carry her to the Vatic fountain, whose virtue is to reveal what is to come. This is during labor. Uh, just a reminder of a Vatic fountain is a actual fountain in the house absolute. You throw a coin in it and it reveals your future in symbols in the fountain waters. And Vatic, just in case anyone doesn't know, it does just mean predicting what will happen. Exactly. So. It means uh, like it has to do with prophecy, oracular, mm-hmm. um, you know. Well, we don't know whether the Vatic fountain's design as a fountain is a necessary feature of its technological design or if it was built as a reference to you know wishing fountains that are common in Rome and elsewhere, or if it's a reference to the you know the common religion of the Commonwealth, a hint to the coming of the white fountain, you know more conciliator related imagery, mm-hmm. it all works. And when Severian looks at it later, when he first visits the House Absolute, he gets images of some of those symbols that yeah. he's seen before. So, <laughs> and which in many ways is you know it's a true prophecy. Right, exactly. But yeah, as far as whether it's sort of a magical thing or not, it seems like when he goes to visit it, he gets an actual vision, right? He actually sees things. So it's not that people go and look at the water or whatever and just think they see things in it. Like the way he describes it, it's a pretty clear vision that, you know, he is being shown something, which makes me think that it is more of a technological something. But it's a, they're symbols though. And once mm-hmm. again, you know, he has to apply meaning to those symbols. Yeah, which is weird. Like, I really want to know what it is. And I don't think we really ever explained a whole lot about it. Like, we certainly don't get as much talk about it, even as we do with Father Neri's mirrors. Right. right. As far as what it is. So even though I'm assuming it's supposed to be some kind of technological thing that Neri built, it's always presented as still this magical kind right. of yeah. thing. Um, and uh, the servants go too. like Severian talks about how everybody kind of goes and looks in the Vatic fountain and, and sees yeah. different things. But right, yeah, exactly. Really... And and some are convinced that it works and some think it don't. And, yeah, and, yeah. and Severian thinks, well, you know, maybe you didn't like what you saw. Right. So. <laughs> but I always like this one because it, it still sort of straddles that line between is it just technology that's so far in the future that it seems like magic yeah. or is something else going on? Right. Yeah. So I just like that. But I don't think he ever explains. It. I think he pretty sure that it stays pretty ambiguous. But that would be something that if, if there's another theory about what this thing is, I'd be, I would love to know because I don't. 
So Thecla says, it prophesied that I should sit on a throne. Thea has always envied me that. When she says the Vatic fountain prophesied that I should sit on a throne, that's a perfect, wonderful Wolfian thing of saying something that is going to be true in a way that we totally don't expect. Exactly. It is going to happen. Yes, but not in any way that that they understand. Right. All, right. I also think it's kind of cool that she says there that Thea has always envied me that. And one thing we know when we do meet Thea later on is that she is really just ready to be a rich aristocrat. Right. Like she's, yeah. She talks about how it doesn't really bother me being out here in the forest. I know I'll get there. And I remember this line all the time. She says, ah, but that's a few months away. <laughs> so, <laughs> so don't worry about it. But I love that line because she's so sort of unrealistic about things. She's like, yeah, but but Photolus is going to take over in a few months. So I don't really have to worry about this too much. And that shows a lot. What happens to Thea after Votilus is assassinated? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know <laughs> that we find out ever. Um, but that one little point is just thinking about characterization. It's like, it's so perfect for her yeah. that, that we really know so little about Thea, but we get that, we get that, that envy. Right. right. Yeah. She's just what you would think of from a girl who's grown up in the exalted class, all those. Yeah. So we get some Wolfian dialogue next. Right. Severian says, still the autarch. And Thecla says, yes. And then there's a line break with more dialogue and we the reader are supposed to make out who's talking it's apparently thecla again she says it would be better if i didn't say too much the autark is not like other people no matter how i may talk sometimes on all of earth there is no one like him it's says, i know that then that is enough for you well that's not enough for me i <laughs> i guess <laughs> severian intends to say something like but the autark is a man. But her explanation doesn't really address that unless she assumes she's going to sit on the throne as a memory in the autark's mind. Eventually, we do understand that the autark isn't like other men, but it's not obvious that Thecla understands how. This strikes me that, you know, it ought to be a major state secret. And on the other hand, perhaps it isn't. And that's why people just accept Severian as the autarch simply on evidence that he knows the words of command, open doors and gates. Mm -hmm. So it seems that she understands what becoming the autarch means. She seems to. So she changes the subject and she picks up the brown book. Look here. Here it says, it was the thought of... Uh, good night. I don't know. <laughs> Thela Laius, I, I would say. <laughs> the great that the democracy, that means the people, desired to be ruled by some power superior to itself. And of Eryx, the sage, that the commonality would never permit one differing from themselves to hold high office. Notwithstanding this, each is called the perfect master. I did not see what she meant and said nothing. Uh, I don't know what she's getting at, and I'll just say it. She says, no one really knows what the autarch will do, nor is anyone sure whether the autarch or Father Ennire is in charge or if it makes any difference. The gossip she describes about the House Absolute Court sounds to me like the apprentices of the Madican Tower arguing over what the autarch looks like. She says that she might be free tomorrow, but she never seems to entertain the idea that she might just as well be executed tomorrow. <laughs> so first to go to the names that she throws out, 
in or aside here. Thelalaus, if I'm saying that correctly, was a saint who converted a whole number of pagan pilgrims in Turkey, if I'm remembering correctly, mm-hmm. or, or if I'm using my sources correctly here. So this is someone who was really strong in converting regular people to Christianity or sort of gathering everyone else up into uh, Christianity. That's one. Um, Eurix, if I'm not, I have no idea how to pronounce this one. I have to admit, Rerix or Eurix, the I, sage. Eurix. I thought it was Eurix. Eurix. I, I don't think yeah. that there's any way you can fit all those vowels into one statement. And, and, and if you speak English, um, there is a Saint Eurix that doesn't have the second R. Michael Andrejusi has this in Lexicon Earthus, but who started off as a priest in in court, but then went off and founded a monastery had moved away. So, and that's something that I found in the little bit I could find about, about the saint other places that it's someone who starts off as a saint in the high classes and moves off to go to the lower classes. So both of these people that he's mentioning right here are definitely about sort of the common people in one way or another. Um, by the way, the only other thing I would mention is that Thaleus, the great, that's also very close to Thales, who was the first sort of pre-Socratic philosopher, but that's all. The only reason I mentioned that is that Thales was also the one who said that the most important element in the world is water. Oh, I was really, I was I'm on Tinder hooks expecting you're going to say the most important element is the people. Oh <laughs> yeah. No, it would have been great if it was perfect, but no. So just, just throw that out. I have no idea if Wolf is even thinking about that, but okay. So then you have the weird thing where he says that, okay, everyone in the democracy that means the people wanted to be ruled by some power superior to themselves. It's a basic mm-hmm. paradox, right? Right. I wonder there if she's misidentifying democracy or if the, you know, here's one question where you can ask, is the word that she actually used actually democracy? And is Wolf the translator doing something different? That's probably overthinking that way too much. But democracy, of course, to us doesn't just mean the people. It actually means rule know, all people. of that power is the rule of the people. Right. And so then that, that's first by a paradox by itself. Thecla is creating a parallel, I think, in her mind between the autarch, which is a person, and the democracy, which is the ruled, that is, a group of people. So for her, autarchy is a political system and also a human being who rules over an autarky. So therefore, a democracy is a political system and also the people who rule over that system. Yeah, that makes sense um, because it's, and honestly, it fits a lot more with sort of monarchical theories, you know, and the, the way that, that monarchies usually set up the world where there are different types of body politic and the the king is the head and and you know the people serve sort of the different functions so that kind of you know metaphor and symbol for the way to think about the relationship between them it seems appropriate and especially if you know as has happened the this society has reverted to some form of of monarchy then yeah it it seems appropriate way to think but then you have Eurix the sage come in and say that, of course, those people would never permit someone differing from themselves to hold high office. Um, so in other words, that right. the common people would never want anyone who's not common to hold high office. Well, the secret, the secret to all this is that the autarch resolves that. That's paradox. at least what it seems like it ought to do, right? 
that the autarch is right. someone who's not an exultant, but who comes in and on this reading represents the mass of the Commonwealth in and among the exultants. Now, right. if that's the case, that's a, like you said, that seems like a weird way of organizing a society because it's really hierarchical but then at the same time you mm -hmm. have one person who's not from the ruling classes who comes in and is going to be part of the ruling classes i actually think that part of the problem with figuring this out is that wolf isn't bringing this up to sort of hypothesize a, a good political theory um, or even to really say exactly what the reasoning behind this situation is. Instead, I think part of the reason why this part of the passage is so weird is that it's supposed to say, hey, our government is constructed in a very seemingly irrational way. Okay. And mm. I think that's the point because once we find out what the true purpose of the autarchy is, it has very little to do with the exultants and has very little to do with leading the common people. It's all about something that's future oriented. It's not really about, right. you know, the, this, this government itself. It's about something totally different that's going to come. So I think that's one of the first clues that Wolf puts in there that immediately it, it just sounds really weird. And I think it's supposed to, <laughs> to let you know that, yeah, something yeah. about the office of the autarch is not something that makes sense. At least that's my feeling here. It's a chimera. Nothing really fits mm -hmm. together. He's a supreme ruler who doesn't really seem to rule. A lot seems to go on without him knowing that's mm -hmm. going on. There's not a whole lot of idea about how the Commonwealth does right. run itself. Uh, you don't really see a, a local legal system or police. You don't really see how taxes get disseminated right. down the way. But it is clear that the autarch can't be yeah. running those things. As we know, Thecla is since a year in, in prison. He doesn't even know mm -hmm. about it. Yeah. And he's spending every night in a seedy brothel. <laughs> so yeah. I don't know. Yep. <laughs> and then she even brings up the point that, you know, a lot of people say that Father Aniri is actually the one who handles things and, and who runs the, the details and that the autarch does something totally different, that he's a mystery. And apparently... That once we learn later on what's going on, that's kind of the case that the autarch is really yeah. involved in something very different. I mean, he is involved in the wars, but the whole purpose of what the autarch is supposed to be is a completely separate story. Well, in the case of power, I think he's there as a placeholder. Mm -hmm. He's there to make sure no one else takes that power. Yep. He he's doesn't actually enact the power. The goal is get a, an autarch that will eventually pass the test. And in the meantime, they want to keep the technology of the Commonwealth kind of yeah. compressed at a, so that it doesn't excel too fast so that you can get to the point where right. you can have a rebirth. One thing I like about this though, is that when you then go look back at the paradox that he has there, the two things about this democracy wanting someone better, in an odd way, that actually is what the autarch is actually really doing. Right. Like the autarch really is going to be someone better than the regular people. And by better, it mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily mean morally better or exactly like that. But it's really more like saying the person who's going to be in charge is the one who's going to ultimately lead us to a new state of being. Right. He's going to going to bring some kind of massive change in some ways right. that might be 
uh, when Thekla says that that person is better than the democracy, at least in the eyes of the Hyroduals, who are looking for a larger evolution, that is the case. It does become someone better. Right. But then also the fact that the, the commonality would never permit someone differing from themselves to hold high office. Well, this person is supposed to be someone who I think represents really the best of the Commonwealth. And so it's not like an exultant who's looking down on everyone else. This is also someone who has to have gone through all the things that the Commonwealth is going through, gone through all the degeneration, right. gone, I mean, has started off as a torturer, as an awful person and suffered right. a lot to get there. So at the same time, yeah, the autarch here is someone who follows all of those patterns. So two ways, like it's, it's a paradox that doesn't make sense, but it's also a paradox that absolutely makes sense when you get to yeah. the final thing. But the puzzle to me is still the the exultant class. And you know, all this brings up for me, this whole discussion, the a reference to the politics of Earth. Earth is now an entirely colonized planet. It's it's not subjugated. It's not like China during the 30s or Tibet today. It's like India and the Mideast for the first half of the 20th century. The results are often the same, but the methods are different. These alien powers have come down about the time that the sun was damaged, sometime just during or shortly after the reign of Typhon. And they've cut deals with governments and factions. And through those levers of power, they are calling the shots on Earth. In Sword of the Lictor, Syriaca is going to give at least one perspective on why the exultants, the baronial class, tolerate an autarch rather than insist on choosing one of their own to rule over them, as you know, tends to happen in the case of a monarchy. As she puts it, the autarchy is maintained because the heroes enable him to field an army, pay logistics, war materials. They seem to be more sparing with their energy weapons than Erebus is with the Asians, but they do provide these expensive off-world constructed weapons. And not all the exultants are on board with that. Right. Certainly Vodalus is. Right. Because he sort of, we find out represents then that version, which says, well, no, we are the better people. We should rule everyone else. And we yeah. shouldn't worry about this future where things are going to get better. Instead, we should join with the forces that are, you know, possibly dangerous. So yeah. So one other tiny little thing here, Thecla uses the word pelagic, the pelagic deeps. And uh -huh. we do know that of course, later that's part of the password, the pelagic yeah. argosy. So if you're looking for reasons to think that not just her wristband besides her with Vodalus at some point, that word pelagic, it's such a weird mm -hmm. word. It can't just accidentally have been part of her vocabulary right here yeah it's the worst it's the worst code word too yeah. <laughs> it's like <laughs> hello i am with the megatherians <laughs> i do like the fact though that she talks about how you know all of these insights about father neri and the autark were originally hers and then one of her friends told them back to her i yeah. just think that's a really <laughs> neat kind of wolfian point but it also fits kind of the state of the commonwealth at this point about how ideas kind of move and travel and you don't really know where they come from but she talks about this oh yeah when this came back to me and i realized that it was mine but i'd forgotten that somebody else told me you just don't really know how special things are anymore 
that's why I say it. It sounds like the apprentices sitting around talking about the autark. They have no more idea what's going on in House Absolute than someone in the swamps of Nessus, as Thea called it, has any idea what's going on in House Absolute. And also the fact that she kind of ends here with this idea that nobody knows could be one reason why she ultimately sides with Vodalus, if that's what she's doing, that she feels like it's a it's a crazy system. That in this little <laughs> aside that she's kind of doing here just to keep Severian talking, she might be letting on, you know, yeah, I didn't think any of this really made a lot of sense. And so I wanted something different. I wanted something yeah. else. Well, it feels kind of random for her to be, you know, sent off to the torturers, to a black site, to convince Thea to betray Vodalus, and then she's not going to do it. So then why keep her here? What's the point? But, you know, the more I think about it, the less satisfactory the Autark's explanation seems to me. Well, how credible is it that the Autark really had no idea that one of his inner circle concubines was being held in Nessus for a whole year. I mean, if he's going there, what is he, gathering information? Well, really, the only thing going on that he can gather information on is what's going on in the Citadel. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he must be talking to, to Palamon or Gurluise while he's there, but I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently not. Not if he really didn't know that Thecla was there the whole right. time. And that's where I think I have to sort of pull back to the even bigger picture where when, when things like that happen, I don't feel like it's all just coincidences. I think one thing that you're supposed to think is that especially once you realize, you know, in that scene in Claw where Vodalus and like the Autark is manipulating Vodalus and then you find out more about what Inere is doing and you find out how they're sort of grooming this the whole time. I think it's one of the first early clues that would put you back to the idea that, okay, so much of everything about Severian's life is being manipulated and ordered mm -hmm. from the very beginning. That, yeah, if you're trying to think of this as just how the Autark really should be ruling the whole Commonwealth and why is he running off to do here? Well, the real reason I think that the suggestion in the end is that he's here is because Inere is helping with the Autark. They're like, okay, we, we know who the Hyroduels want next. Looked through time <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, and we know where it's coming from and who it needs to be. And we need to set someone on this path. Mm. And that's the one of the points that makes me feel like we are supposed to look back at this and be like, oh, okay, the Severian's not going to eventually back into the throne. He's step by step. The, being someone's pushing the chair up from behind yeah. him. <laughs> Even if you know that some plan didn't work, doesn't mean you know the plan that will work. Right. So there's some, some risk and there's still some doubt yeah. to everything. All of do. the time travel that we find out is possible in this book. That to me seems like a really big question in terms of issues of like predestination or mm -hmm. even things like free will. I mean, like if you have people who can know what the future is going to be, then are there multiple timelines? Is there yeah. just one timeline? How does that affect thinking about how much Severian is in control of his life or not? Yeah, it's a huge question. He still has control is that the heroes actually sit outside of time, mm -hmm. but Father Aniri doesn't necessarily sit outside right. of time. Yeah, it depends on he's, who or what he is. Yeah. Exactly. He's not all powerful. He's just a small faction. Mm -hmm. Most of them don't even care about yeah. what happens with this timeline. And also, I should say, speaking of which, I'm as surprised as Thecla that no one's trying to get her out. 
I mean, it's believable that people don't want to take up for a spy, but you know, family is family. But then we don't really know what the Autarch's relationship with Thecla and Thea's family is. Maybe right. they send a hostage, but they actually avoid going to court because they're, you know, they're famously suspected of being obvious sympathizers, you know, squishes. It, it seems like Thecla doesn't really understand why she was taken to this black site. She thinks it's because of Thea's rebellion rather than because of something that she's done herself. I mean, even if the letters don't involve telling Vodalus important information about the court, she knows how to get a letter to Vodalus. That's enough to get you arrested in any country, let alone one with an absolute rule. And the other tricky thing, though, there is that we know that the Autarch is manipulating Vodalus, right? Who he knows, and that means then... Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Talk about a puppet. That's a real well, yeah. puppet right there. To me, that seems to suggest that Thecla being imprisoned would mainly be for show because the Autarch isn't really looking for information about Vodalus. He knows what he's doing. It's more that he's Thecla being imprisoned would be trying to show that the Autarch would be against Vodalus. It's not that there's actually Thecla. So that's where I start to really get like, oh man, it's confusing. <laughs> like who? Okay. Let's talk about her. Thecla's name again. Okay. Thecla. The we are claw. missing the W. I will point out, we are missing the W. But. Oh, yeah, the major <laughs> W. Oh, yeah, that's a big deal. Yeah, You know, Wolf would never go for something like that. <laughs> Potentially, she is the conciliator, or she is that necessary part of Severian becoming the conciliator. And so the whole point could be just to put it here so that she could end up becoming a part of Savannah. And let's look at what she does in the plot. Like she is really the thing that moves him away from the tortures, right? That lets him see that there's something more, mm -hmm. that there's a different way to live, that maybe what he's doing here is bad. <laughs> you know, she's the point. <laughs> well, she to... kicks him out of the torturers. Right, you know, exactly. That's, savor. that's the thing, yeah, is that she sets him on a path and all of the consequences from what happens with Thecla are what makes him honestly start to get a conscience, you know, and, and to start mm -hmm. to really think about other people. He takes a long time to start thinking about women, but really starting to use what he understands about his relationship to Thecla. And that moment of mercy that he gives her is what sets him into thinking about mercy. And it's kind of what sets him into being open to trying to use the claw to heal, where he's kind of hesitant to use it at first. And the more and more he gets into it, the more and more he's willing to try and use this power to heal that he has. And Thecla is the thing that sets him on that path so it's not all that far-fetched i mean i don't i'm not saying that thecla is actually the thing that gives the claw power or something like that but in terms of i mean basically starting to change severian's personality she's the thing she's the right she's the indwelling spirit literally <laughs> <laughs> we are getting very away sorry we're 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 this this one we have gotten i i may have taken us way off so we should get back to the chapter well all right yeah all right so Severian, now he thinks about the, the Kaibit, the shadow woman, the prostitute cosplayer. He says, uh, I recalled the beautiful woman at the top of the stairs in House Azure. You know, Thea, the idea of Thea rather than Thecla, actually has more significant personal meaning to Severian at this point. 
Vodalus fighting to protect her. That's the initial impetus for Severian's admiration of him and his loyalty to him in the necropolis. What is the meaning of his constant obsession with her beauty? The false Thecla, the thought that she detected that Severian was more enamored with the false Thea than he was with her. When he sees her again in Vodalus's camp, he's going to talk a lot about her beauty. What does Thea mean to Severian in this story? I don't I'm know. Thinking, I'm thinking, <laughs> this is going to sound a little off the deep end, but one thing that does stand out to me, and especially it's just kind of the way that this is phrased here, where he says, I recalled the beautiful woman at the top of the stairs in the house azure. That's the fake Thea. And so he Mm -hmm. says, in my memory, I thought of the fake Thea. The next thing he talks about is the real Thea. I think I saw your half-sister once. It was in the necropolis. And then he describes her. So here's, this is a bit of reaching, but there is kind of a sort of pseudo-platonic moment there where you look at the fake copy or the fallen version, and that can literally, in Plato's sense, remind you of something that is more beautiful that follows after. In other words, fake things aren't degenerate like in plato regular things like physical things all around us worldly things are both fallen and degenerate and broken finite copies of the the pure forms the pure ideas or whatever but what they also do is they're the only path to get back to those things that they're less than they could be but they also are kind of like a guide uh, a point to to get back to something and the only reason i bring that up is because i think it's really kind of cool that he immediately thinks of the fake one that reminds him of the, the real one, the beautiful one. And then at the very end of that, he said, the woman had a heart shaped face and a voice that made me think of doves. So it's sort of like he's going through different stages of beauty. <laughs> it's like there's sort of immediate <laughs> fake fallen, false, false beauty. But then that reminds me of the real beauty. And then that gets me up all the way to, you know, made me think of doves. Well, we're getting there in a sort of more symbolic stuff. But in that one little paragraph, there is kind of that movement, you know, out of Plato's cave. <laughs> it's, it's you're you're sort of moving up to something bigger. I that's a huge, huge weight to put on one little paragraph right there. Um, but there are a lot of times in the book where Severian will, you know, experience something that's imperfect or that it's broken or something, but it'll still be an image of something that could be better and it makes him want more. And that's a moment of that. So that's a more sort of very abstract philosophical way to to think about that one. As far as what Thea actually means to him in the plot right here, I mean, Thea is the, she's the first woman who he sees who's not one of the witches, not one of his regular like experiences around and she's connected to Vodalus who he thinks is really cool and exciting and and doing something wonderful. And so in his mind, Thea is associated with his devotion to Vodalus, his oath that he took. To uh, come up with a, a metaphor that's never been said before. Maybe she's the other side of the coin. <laughs> Maybe she is the Thecla that might have been just like Vodalus is the other choice that he might have taken. And when he, when he gets close to both of them, he realizes they really aren't what he, he, he thought mm. they would be. That makes sense. That makes sense. So anyway, he mentions the Thecla that he saw Thea once in the Acropolis. He speaks of Vodalus as a secondary person. 
There was an exultant with her who carried a sword cane, and he was very handsome. He told me he was Vodalus. The woman had a heart-shaped face and a voice that made me think of doves, like you said. There's that constant reference association with Thea and doves, and I want it to mean something. Then Thecla says, they want her to betray him to save me, and I know she won't. But when they discover that, why shouldn't they let me go? You know, same thing. It's it's more personal than she believes. Yeah. The, sub, the subject then moves to Thecla. She says that she rarely talked about religion. She calls it metaphysics at the House Absolute. She went to dances and she, quote, pursued the peccary with pardine limers. That means she went boar hunting with spotted hunting dogs. A peccary isn't a wild boar. It's a like a, uh, the Spanish called them javelina, which is their name for wild boar. But they're a different family than pigs or wild boars. They currently live in South and Central America and and in the American Southwest. But just like uh, feral pigs, such as wild boars, they can be dangerous. And I suppose we're supposed to imagine her hunting on a horse. Aristocratic hunts, that yeah. sort of image. It's also a weird phrase. Polite <laughs> alliteration. Pursued the peccary with partying limers. Yeah, yeah that's, well, that's kind of fun to say. Anyway, all she knows about religion and such is what she learned as a child from her tutor. She says, flowers are better theology than folios, Severian. A, a folio is essentially a book. We'd have to get into the techniques of bookmaking to explain how it's different from other books. But the Gutenberg Bible was originally printed as a folio. So the implication is a religious book. Mm -hmm. Then Drott comes in and says, time to go. He looks through the slot. As he leaves, she tells Severian that if he sees Thea again, he should tell her about her. And he says that he will. She says there's no way she'll betray Vodalus for her sister, but if she knew about her situation, maybe a compromise could be worked out. And as the door is shut, he walks away and she says, reminder of the time we sewed Josephus's doll. Josepha is a childhood friend, uh, maybe a fellow concubine as well. This is So this is either a sign that she'll know Severian is really speaking for Thecla and that it's not a setup or it's a code for something else. But as far as I know, this doll never comes up again in the story anymore. Is that right? As soon as, yeah, that's, I was just looking up because I don't think so. And that's. Yeah, they go fish. When they arrive at House Absolute, uh, he has a memory of Thecla and Josepha going fishing. As soon as you said that, though, it did sound like one of those password phrases again. <laughs> I was like, oh, it could well be, couldn't it? Maybe there's a secret message in the doll or something. I don't know. but yeah. Or it could just be, you know, this way you'll know that I've really been talking to Thecla. Yeah. So Thea does know or eventually finds out that Thecla has been sent to the, the swamps of Nessus, as she calls it. But they apparently don't know about the Manichin black site. So Varian then says, it had not escaped me that Thecla had not asked how her sister and Vodalus had come to be in our ancient and by such people as themselves forgotten necropolis, which meant that he knew that she was well aware of what they were doing there, even if Severian himself didn't know yet, which of course brings all the theories in of what the heck they were doing in that particular necropolis anyway. While they walk down the hall, Drata talks about how he and Rosha had recently gone across the guile to a lion pit. I don't know if this was like a sideshow or if they were watching lions fight. I don't know. But 
Time passes. The lilies fade, and then the roses start to bloom. He calls them dark death roses, nigrescent purple flecked with scarlet. Nigrescent means black or very dark. They sound morbid, but pretty. It's a very uncut sum and takes them to Thecla. When she gets them, she says, Here rose the graced, not rose the chaste, reposes. The scent that rises is no scent of roses. <laughs> Severian has no sense of irony. He says, well, if you don't like the smell. <laughs> In uh, Castle of the Otter, Wolf ascribed the poem to originally be about Rosamund Clifford uh, from her grave. She was the mistress of Henry II, the father of Richard the Lionhearted and King John. For whatever reason, legends about her just took off in the 14th century, about 150 years after her death. The story that Wolf relates is that Henry hid Rosamond in a labyrinth, but Eleanor of Aquitaine, you know, she beat the maze and found her. She ran, but she was embroidering and her ball of yarn trailed behind her and Eleanor's men followed her, the thread and killed her. This is perfect for Wolf. It's mythologically true in so many ways. But frankly, I can't find out where Wolf might have heard of it. The form related in a book called um, Mazes and Labyrinths, which would not surprise me if Jean owned it. It said that Eleanor found her and gave her the choice between a dagger or poison, and she chose poison. You know, not really as good. So the, the original tomb inscription was in Latin, and it was ported by a German tourist in 1599, about 400 and a quarter years after her death. The inscription was barely readable at the time. It goes, let them adore, and we pray that rest be given to you, Rosamond. Here in the tomb lies the rose of the world, not a pure rose. She who used to smell sweet still smells, but not sweet. Grandma used to recite the poem, I guess, whenever she saw roses. There used to be a woman when her grandmother was a child who was, quote, infamous as a girl. Nursery rhymes are like that. And I suspect that, you know, Rose might not have even been infamous as a girl. The kids might have chanted that rhyme because, you know, her name was Rose. But anyway, Thecla says, actually, I suspect it is much older and lost in time, like the beginnings of all good and bad things. Thecla doesn't doubt Rose was what the children said of her, that she was infamous. And it makes her consider the way men talk about women with a known sexual history. Mm -hmm. She says... Men are said to desire women, Severian. Why do they despise the women they obtain? That beautiful rose gave herself and suffered such mockery for it that I know about it, though her dreams long ago turned to dust with her smooth flesh. And that probably prompts her to do what she does next. She calls him over to sit by her, and she pulls his shirt off over his head. He protests, but he doesn't resist. And she says... What are you ashamed of? It's just your shirt. (laughs) And she comments on his dark hair and pale skin. She says that everyone comments on her pale complexion, but she's tanned compared to him. So he's, you know, he's a very white guy. Yeah. It's also just strange that she would start the seduction by saying, or why do men hate women? Or are you, or is it a way just sort of a backward saying, are 
will you still love me in the morning? <laughs> well, it's hard to tell how much how much of it was thought of beforehand. I you know, I don't know. You can't really say. And Severian never never says. Well, then we do get the line that I always think is just over the top irony where she says, you know, my skin is is done next to yours. You must flee the sun when you're a torture Severian. <laughs> You'll burn terribly. Yeah, well, she knows he's he's not going to wear shirts anymore. Right. So, of course, there's that. But also, you know, thinking about what the sun represents here in the larger story, you know, he has to escape the sun while he's a torture. And it's when he gives up a torture that mm-hmm. he can get closer to the sun. And then also the idea that you will burn terribly. The idea <laughs> that if the sun sees you as a torturer, you're going to burn. And that's what yeah. he decides is true later on. So when you, you read that. And you put the sun and everything else in the proper context. It's just sort of like an over-the-top ironic statement, but I like it. I think Gene Wolfe invented a fashion device here. She's got her hair up, and she an aerial is is in her hair. Now, you know, an aerial is like a radiant circle mm-hmm. that goes around a saint's head in a medieval painting, or the, maybe the spikes coming out of the the Statue of Liberty. But here he imagines a device that holds a woman's hair in a bun. So I'm imagining a, de- a device, but with straight spikes coming out from all around the back of it. So it's it's kind of a cool idea. It would probably sell if you could figure out how to make it work. <laughs> but, you know, I haven't been able to. Does he mention spikes? Does he mention spikes? No, no, he just says an aerial. Oh. So I don't know what okay. that means, you know. But that's kind of what I imagine. I imagine Dark. little little yeah. metal rods that come out from behind her head yeah the one thing that immediately makes me smile at that is that's also the word that's used for when you see medieval images or icons that the halo around them exactly yeah so to have more sort of saint imagery put with thecla exactly um, right after we've talked about her as possibly the claw (laughs) today in this special time that her hair now it's a dark ariel it's not a glowing bright one Mm -hmm. but to use that word again, it's not a, it's not casually chosen. Right. Uh, Severian says, and this is kind of interesting that with her hair in a bun, she looked more like Thea than ever. He says she had never more closely resembled her half sister Thea. And I felt such desire for her that I seemed to be spilling my blood upon the floor, growing weaker and fainter with each contraction of my heart. Once again, there's this suggestion that his actual physical attraction to Thecla has always been that she closely resembled Thea, mm-hmm. oh lady of the devs. Yeah. That's interesting. And I just don't know what he's getting it's at. It's also fun that he's thinking of that so much with his blood spilling out on the floor, which is precisely <laughs> the image he talks about with Thecla all the time after that of seeing the blood come under the the door. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. His heart is pounding so hard that she can hear it. And she smiles and said, why are you pounding on my door? And he says, I must go. And she's, and so she doesn't fight it. She says, you'd better put your shirt back on before you leave. You wouldn't want your friend to see you like that. And I hate to say it, but the, the line, why are you pounding on my door? There's obviously a kind of sexual oh, yeah. play with that as well. Exactly. Um, and the one thing i wonder about this part though is we do know later on that they did have sex Uh and i don't know if it's this specific scene that we're supposed to know that that happened well there could be a lacuna there for when he says i must go 
or yeah. she could just say, go ahead and go. Cause she knows he's going to be back. <laughs> and yeah. He knows it's stupid, but he spends the next three nights wandering around the necropolis, hoping to run into Thea and Vodalus. And then on the fourth night, Roche takes him to a Nessus bar, and there they heard someone who seemed sure of it say that Vodalus was in the far north raiding kafilas. Uh, a kafila is a trading caravan. I want to establish some geographics here. It's early, late spring or early summer, and he says that Vodalus is hiding among the frost-pinched forests in the north. So the north is of course moving toward the equator for them. So it should be warmer. So, but maybe he's actually talking about say like the, the Andes mountains or something like that. It could be that. I also was wondering if that was just a point saying that the sun is so weak that even in the spring, it's still mm. colder, closer to the equator. So more time passes. That's all we know. It's coming close to a year since Thecla got to the tower. She's really starting to figure that the danger is past and no one's going to torture her. Because after all, you know, like she said, what's the point if Thea isn't going to try and save her anyway? And which he'd said too is also one of the most dangerous times <laughs> for the yeah. for the <laughs> for the prisoners because they get they stop thinking it's actually going to happen. Right. Yeah. She's feeling better about it. So she has draw to bring some papers and pens to write and draw because she's going to design a villa on the southern shore of Lake Deaterna. Which, of course, is the lake where Baldander's house. Yes. Yeah. And we're, and we're going to get there eventually. Uh, apparently, yep. that's the most remotely north part of the Commonwealth and the most beautiful. And Lake Deaterna is a word that means long lasting, but it's derived from a term that means all day as in continually. I'd like to come up with a more interesting meaning behind the name because I'm like that. Everyone wants to come up with a connection between Juturna and Diaturna. As far as I know, no one has. Now, the most common theory of readers who assume that the Commonwealth is in South America is that Lake Diaturna is Lake Titicaca on the border of Peru and Bolivia. And remember that Thecla is planning to build her villa on the southern shore. On the southern shore is the Isla del Sol, the island of the sun. Well, you know, all the pieces are there. Oh, just one one other thing. Just I was just checking. So she wants this, her little villa built on the southern part of Lake Diaterna, and Baldander's Tower is on the northern shore of Lake Diaterna. Just want to point that out. As long as we're getting getting some geography down here, then <laughs> In the, uh, in, the, in the second chapter, Severian said that he never went back to swim in the guile, but apparently that means that he didn't do it with Rosha and Drota for fun. He ta still takes groups of apprentices there because he thinks it's his job, but he avoids going into the deep water and it always makes him nervous when he does. And then suddenly it turns too cold to swim. Now it's fall. The sign of the change in the weather is that you you wake up with frost and the old yard flagstones and there's fresh pork for dinner. And then he gets summoned by Gerlois and Palamon. And Gerlois says, from several quarters, we have good reports of you. And now your apprenticeship is nearly served. I guess several quarters means the journeyman because, I mean, it's not like he's going to get reports from the rest of the Citadel or anything. There's a genuine affection in Palamon's voice for Severian when he talks to him. 
Severian has to make a decision on whether he'll accept being a true torturer. He can choose to leave the guild and do something else if he wants. He says he'd never questioned whether to be a torturer or not, but he says that was a lie. He'd always been ambivalent about being a torturer. He says, though I love the guild, I hated it too, not because of the pain it inflicted on clients who must sometimes have been innocent and who must often have been punished beyond anything that could be justified by their offenses. But because it seemed to me inefficient and ineffectual, serving a power that was not only ineffectual, but remote, I do not know how better to express my feelings about it than by saying that I hated it for starving and humiliating me, and I loved it because it was my home, hated and loved it because it was the exemplar of old things, because it was weak, because it seemed indestructible. So this is one of those passages that does a whole bunch of things. I mean, on the one hand, I think you're supposed to look at Severian and be like, yeah, I didn't hate it because it was all about torture. I hated it for all these other reasons mm -hmm. that seem weird, like ineffectual and things like that. And it seems a little strange and morally questionable and all that. There's another way to read it, which is just like, this is precisely how a teenager feels. Yeah. Right. This, this small town, I'm too good for it. Exactly. I think this passage has those moments of feeling like, oh, are we supposed to learn something deep and moral about his choices at this point? And kind of, but I think really what it's, it's a long paragraph to say, I was like every other teenager yeah. in the world, <laughs> you know, and I was thinking really mostly about myself and not about the real circumstances or really what's going on or even really about my future and what I wanted, but was really more just reacting to sentimentality on the one hand and that sort of frustration with the same old thing and just wanting to do something new. This is real skill though. It's, it's not easy to write a paragraph about yeah. feeling ambiguous. Yeah. No, I know. Oh, I like it a lot. Yeah. I'm not, you know, it's, it's great. It's also a good reminder here that becoming a torturer was a choice. Mm -hmm. Well, sort of. And that's what Severian says is that it's really a kind of a theater of choice. Right. Right. Cause he really doesn't know anything else. And to assume that he could then just say, yes, I've decided that this is a morally questionable perspective thing. So I'm going to take off, you know, but it's like he says, he knew nothing else. This is happening at, is at the beginning of winter. He's He's got right, no money right, exactly. and no skill. What's he going to do? He says he might have expressed yeah. his ambivalence if it was just him and Palamon there, but he, but not in front of Gerloise. And he really feels like it's kind of ridiculous to ask him to join the guild or, or walk away And at that point. They, they were pretty much sandbagging yeah. him. Looking back, and he knows that looking back. I don't know if he realized it at the time. Yeah. Master Palamon doubles down with a sunk cost fallacy. Yeah. He says, <laughs> it's an option open to you. Many would say that only a fool would serve out the hard years of apprenticeship and refuse to become a journeyman of his guild when his apprenticeship was passed. But you may do so if you wish. <laughs> Severian says, where would I go? I have been reared in our guild. But what he really means is, where would I go? I don't know anything else. Literally. You know, yeah. this is one of those initiation ceremonies, you know, like some traditions where you have to affirm agreement three times. And says, among yeah. the initiates of religion, it is said you are an epopped always. The reference is not only to knowledge, but to their chrism, whose mark being invisible is eradicable. 
you know our chrism. Well, chrism is like a baptism or an anointing. I, their chrism is blood. But he makes a good point about things like baptism and, and such, that because it's invisible, it's also eradicable. Nothing is going to wear it off. You're not going to lose some special object that makes it yours. It's always on you. We're also getting back to symbols there again. With the role of symbols in here, it's a symbol that, you know, even the invisible symbol may be even more powerful. An epopt is an initiate in the highest level of the illusion mystery religions. Uh, mystery religions, you know, they're all about Gnosticism, by the way. The name Gnostic is, means something like uh, knowledge, and they're, they're built about imparting secret knowledge as you progress up the ladder. The most, you know, the fam most famous idea was that the initiate would be taken into a dark cave where there are drawings that depict the secrets at the center of the religion, and then they strike a spark. And that's their moment. But in Eastern Orthodox Church, you know, the same re region of the world as the Aleutian Mysteries, by the way, a chrism is a ritual where you're anointed with oil. What does it mean? Do you know your chrism? Is it what is it? Is, is the chrism cruelty and torture? Unless, because the way he goes on to explain it is he says, you know, our chrism and I nodded. But then he says, less even than theirs can it be washed away. So should you leave now, men will only say he's nurtured by the torturers. He goes on to talk about how you're always going to be associated with us. No matter where you go or even if you leave us now, you're always going to be considered a torturer by everyone So maybe else. a Christian is, is, is torture. I think so. It's where he's from. It's what he does, that that you are already marked as a torture. Yeah. It's what he's – yeah, once you've, once you've done it, you're marked by the rest of the world as being – one of us. So his history, his upbringing, his environment where he was raised, all of those things are the chrism, which is a very ominous statement, especially for someone who's going to go out and try and change and eventually turn back on the guild. It's a way of saying, you know, you can't ever really give up on that past. Yeah. You always take it with you. We know, though, that Severian's whole big story here, the whole new sun, is about washing away the past. So that may be something that is presented here as possibly false. I mean, obviously, you mentioned baptism. I mean, right? What is baptism? It's supposed to be washing away the old and starting anew, that it's a new a new start. So it could be presented as, you know, Palamon is wrong. Well, maybe, maybe. It's a rough way to, to wash everything new. So, but anyway, after Severian says yes three times, the master's smile. Master Palamon showing his few old crooked teeth and Master Gurloe's his square yellow ones like the teeth of a dead nag. <laughs> yeah, which is gross, which is also making me think of all those older images of British boarding schools where the teachers are all these old sort of leering, creepy old guys. But also, you know, it shows that Severian looking back on this is not looking back with pride or happiness at this moment. And then they give the final secret. Then he and Master Palamon expounded to me that secret which lies at the heart of the guild and is more sacred because no liturgy celebrates it and it lies naked in the lap of the pancreator. And they swore me never to reveal it, save as they did, to one about to enter upon the mysteries of the guild. I have since broken that oath, as I have many others. So this is a reread. Should we talk about the secret? Of course. What good is a secret if you're not going to talk about it? <laughs> what good is a secret if we don't tell it? The secret is only that torturers obey. 
and that no one truly obeys unless he will do the unthinkable in obedience. And no one will do the unthinkable save the torturers. It's a strange secret. It's almost, it's the most unsecret secret I can imagine that the torturers <laughs> obey and are willing to do the unthinkable. That's what everyone knows about them. I'm glad they're keeping that under their hat. Very sort of Isaac and Abraham right there, that they will do the awful thing. How do you take that that sense of obey? Do you feel like the real purpose of that is that they can do the unthinkable, they can serve their um, leader that way? And do you think that actually is sort of the larger point of why a torturer can become the new son or can bring the new it's son? It's a ridiculous secret for starters, but... <laughs> yeah. Oh, really? <laughs> I had no idea about the tortures, that, that that was what they do. But the big secret is that it includes a justification that they are the greatest and only true patriots in the Commonwealth. Right. It's a dark and awesome motto to center your life around, we will obey and nothing else to have nothing any deeper or meaningful than that. Mm -hmm. The German liquidation camp soldiers excused themselves by saying, we were only following orders. They deprecated the horror of what they did by draining the actions of all manliness and agency. The guild, on the other hand, regarding their duties, they justify the horrible things they do by saying, we follow orders. They have deified the yeah. state's will to a degree that, that what it wills is good because it wills it. A bad government, a bad government order. These are not rational terms by this understanding. Right. And so obedience is supremely good in itself. It's a sacrifice to the state. They're declaring that the awfulness of what they are willing to do is itself a good, regardless of whether the, the state itself is good. Yeah. It's both very meaningful and very nihilistic. And if you're going to take on that life, it is just what you need to get through it. Yeah. We've seen that Gerlo suffers. Yes. Yeah, because he's a thoughtful man. He can't just obey. Yeah. He has to think about everything. But right. he is very devoted to that precept to obey and to follow the rules. But he's he, he's a, like Severian says, he's a bad fit. So then when Severian says he's broken the oath not to tell anyone about it, when you read it here, that would make it seem like, oh, I'm a, I'm a promise breaker uh -huh. and I'm a bad thing. But I guess once you know what it actually is and how it can damage mm -hmm. people like Gerlo's and how it can keep this sort of awful tradition going and going, that's actually a statement of a kind of heroism, yeah. right? Like I broke the oath to do that. I didn't know the oath and what it forces people to do. Gerlo's is a perfect <laughs> example of, of that. It's, it requires an absurd, impossible human. You can't be someone who just obeys thoughtlessly and be a torturer, but you can't be a torturer and be a thoughtful person. And, and that's the tragedy of it and the craziness of it. It's, a, it's yeah. both a necessary motto and insane motto.
Yeah. I also think that it cuts so much to the core of the real, like you said, sort of ethical and psychological problem with this place where Severian comes from, that a lot of those other theories, because there have been many other theories about what the secret is and how it ties into some odd plot thing um, or, or something like that. All of those seem so much less meaningful <laughs> in a certain way than that idea about obeying. I have to admit, it gets more complicated than when I think about Severian's role in the bigger game of the Hyroduels and Father Aeneri and the Autark manipulating him and how much is Severian and what is his power or what is the conciliator's power that there it gets a little harder for me to trace what the the real sort of I don't know I guess outcomes of obeying or not obeying or who he would be obeying in those places gets a little more complicated. He doesn't just obey though right he he in this oh, no, case, no, he actually he chooses. He chooses the the new son. He actually has a view of what the choice would be the other way. He yeah. hears every yeah. side. Uh, he hears, he sees Typhon, he sees Vodalus, and he decides that sort of the best answer is that there be a new start on Earth. But like I said, it's a lousy secret, but it's a very good secret for bringing people into loyalty to, for what they have to do. And the, the importance of it, too, just to point out that this is one of the few times so far in the book that we've gotten a mention of the pan creator. And for him to talk about here how the secret that lies at the heart of the guild and is more sacred because no liturgy celebrates it, and it lies naked in the lap yeah. of the pan creator. It's nihilist. Isn't that what he's saying there? I yeah. think so. I think so. Yeah. And they don't understand it as nihilism. To right. them, it really is, or at least they have to talk about it as being a point of honor, but as we know, it destroys right. people, both the both the torturers and the tortured. Mm -hmm. But yeah, just to have the, just wanted to point out, this is the one time, and there aren't too many times in this book where Wolf talks about the pan creator actually in a way that sounds that actually sounds sacred or prayerful. But that that phrase of it lies naked in the lap of the pan creator just sounds almost so heartfelt <laughs> that it's it's not the normal kind of phrase that you get from Severian. It doesn't seem well, the, you know, the tortures, you know, everyone assumes that they don't, that they're not religious, but they, you know, they are. I, yeah. I think a lot of this discussion of theology though, you know, do we see uh, Thecla in this? That's where I see Thecla in these discussions that have to do with religion. And we'll get into more of that, mm -hmm. but he thinks about these things a lot right after he takes part of the ritual. Right. So, and I would add too, that it's not just, the religious sense, but you can also read that as just a very strong ethical and moral role that, that Thecla plays in mm -hmm. his life. So I want to say that too, because there, you know, people, lots of people talk about, you know, can you read Wolf and, and go along with the story and be religious or not religious? I remember a long discussion on the Earthlers one time where people were saying that if you're not actually religious, you just really won't understand Wolf quite so much. I don't know that that's true. That, I mean, if you think about Thecla here as really, you know, like I was talking about, like more of the moment where he starts to get a conscience and he understands mm -hmm. mercy and things like that. It tells the same, a similar kind of story. Now, in the long run, we may have different ideas about how theology and how ideas of one person's relationship to a God or a higher power or something would be there. But I still feel like at least that point that you're talking about with Thecla can be personal as yeah. well as theological. Yeah, sure. But that, that's actually something maybe we should talk about later. Since we talked a lot about religious themes or religious ways of talking about things, one thing we'll, we should definitely talk more later about, I think, is, yeah, how much the book is religious, how much is it actually using using religious imagery. That point about, you know, 
do you have to be religious to understand Wolf? I think it's an interesting question. Well, honestly, Wolf is not religious in any conventional way as people think That's of it. What he's I not, think he's not political. Yeah. You know, you've right, got your own right. little lines about what it means to be religious or Christian. You've got your ideas of what the boundaries are in politics. Yeah. Wolf doesn't care about those, and he is doesn't fit in any of your categories. Yeah. And I sort of bring that up because to to say we did get one comment where someone mentioned that, you know, we're talking too much about religious stuff. I don't think it's something you can't talk about with this book. But, you know, as I mentioned a long time ago when we first started this, I mean, you and I kind of come from different backgrounds, but we're still here talking about this one mm -hmm. book. So I think that that's there, there are better places probably for it right here. But that is a real question I think that would be fun to get into yeah. sometime of you know, how does your own take on religion make you look at Wolf in different ways? And, yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's for the future. A little too late for that right now. Now that doesn't stop lots of people from believing that actually the secret might be something totally different. So maybe this is, is this, can we do Curiosity's Earth this year? I've got a couple. Yes, bring it on. Curiositas Urthus. Okay, so even among people who have read this many times, there are loads of people who don't believe that that is the secret, even though that's what Severian says it is other times. And there is one other spot where he pretty clearly, I think, states that the secret is that the torturers obey. Right. He says it twice. He tells, kind of says one to to Dorcas and then later. Right. And it actually makes sense that that would be the secret given eventually what obeying would mean, which means doing the unthinkable and flooding the earth and, and hopefully making something better come mm -hmm. up. At least that's how I read that, that part. But there are many other people. And I have to say, even for a while, I was fascinated with the idea that the real secret well, and I'll say mine first. My my idea used to be that the real secret was that the torturers are all that's left of the real Catholic Church, of the true church. That that's what I thought. and Or at least I really liked that idea. And that all of their history was actually something about where they're keeping at least part of an old tradition alive. And that maybe that was why Severian is so open to the conciliator myth. That was, I, I don't believe that anymore, but that's what I used to think. Now, there are other people, and this is a good one from the Earth List from a long time ago, who have gotten even more specific about that and have tried to say that the real secret is not just that they're Catholic, but that actually they are the last Dominican order. Um, and there's a lot of detail here about why that would be. But the main reason, I believe, is that the person who listed this out in the earth list a long time ago really talked about how a lot of the rituals seem to mix with Dominican rituals. And they listed a few good examples. What was fun though, was that right after that, it started a whole big conversation about how it was actually different orders. <laughs> so it wasn't people <laughs> disagreeing with the idea that it was the Catholic church or a particular monk's order, but about which order it was. So uh -huh. within that, I found some people saying Franciscans, which seemed the hardest. That's a tough one. Yeah. Yeah. To, to really get with the Franciscans, because it's just not, I mean, they're, they're more like hippies. And these are different <laughs> from, from that. A uh, couple Benedictines. And the last one was the Jesuits. And that could be, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, that one seemed further one. The only one of those that that really made sense was just the Dominican, just because I feel like from what I know, and it's very limited, I have to admit, about the Dominican order that that some of the ways, at least in older versions, you know, from we're talking centuries ago, uh, fit with the the rituals and the traditions mm. that it was there. But that is one of the the really far theories. And that idea really hits with a couple of people because I've seen it in other places too. In Reddit, there's a blog out there that talks about how this could be Dominican. And a lot of people really like that. And then they go really far into medieval theology <laughs> about how things about this book really do well with Aquinas and, and are using a lot of that to spell it out. So if you're really into church history and you're really into some philosophy and theology from the Middle Ages, thinking about how these guys might be the leftover Dominicans would be one one rabbit hole you can follow. <laughs> well, I am. Let's definitely add a link to that in the show notes. Well, okay. We have reached the end. Okay, so as always, please get in touch with us on social media. We have the Twitter account. We've got the the Facebook page, which is where I think I'd say most of our uh, back and forth is. Um, And that's where most people are probably going to talk about your ideas if you add them up there. Um, And just as a reminder, it doesn't have to be on this episode. Like we talked about at the beginning, we're happy to talk about whichever chapter you want to. We, We don't expect that... Of course, everyone is listening right along with us and kind of hope that people do step in later on, maybe when we're done with all of Shadow and want to start back at the beginning. So please, at any point, yeah, everything is fair game. We also do have an Instagram account going. All of these, by the way, you can find Rereading Wolf. But James in particular is doing some a great job of finding a variety of wolf covers, some that I have not found um, and I've never seen before. Great. Uh, take a look over there. There's a Rereading Wolf podcast subreddit. If there's some social media I'm missing, you should let me know. <laughs> Actually, we're building a, a YouTube channel. Uh, apparently, people listen to podcasts on YouTube. Yep. So if you're ever in a situation where you want to to do it that way, and that's easier than a podcast, we're, we're going to try and just get the... They're going to be simple audio um, with, a, with an image over it. But still, they'll be available there, too. Next time, we're going to be talking about the feast. Plenty, plenty of Curiositas Earthus oh, yeah. moments with Catherine... This is going to be, in fact, half the show might be that (laughs) next time. We'll see. But we'll talk about his actual initiation and have more fun there. So thanks for listening. Thank you much. I want to spread the news that if it feels it's good getting used, oh, you just keep on using me until you use me up. Until you use me up Oh, sometimes It's true, you really do abuse me Oh, you get me in a crowd of high-class people And then you act real rude to me Till you use me up
But she she couldn't have a tryst with the autark, right? That's that's one thing everybody well, seems to know. Yeah. That's what they say. <laughs>